welcoming you to chapter 141 of A History of England. Poor old Gladstone. He'd gone from grand old man to murder of Gordon in one parliamentary term. And Gladstone had only been slow in sending a force to rescue the beleaguered general. The actual defeat in Khartoum and his death there had all been down to Gordon's own insubordination and recklessness. What made things worse is that this was 1885. Gladstone's government had been in office five years. Strictly speaking, he could go seven years at that time without an election, but in practice, parliaments lasted at most six. An election was very much on the horizon. And what had he achieved? There'd been plenty of events, one worth recounting, if only as an amusing anecdote, concerned the 15th Earl of Derby. Remember him? He was the son of the former Conservative Prime Minister, the 14th Earl, and he'd served as a Tory minister himself. Since, though, he'd fallen out with his former colleagues and drifted towards the Liberals. I mentioned last time that Gladstone had lost three ministers over his attempts to conciliate Irish nationalists. One of them, Lord Kimberley, was succeeded as Secretary for the Colonies by none other than this same Derby a Liberal cabinet minister, where before he'd been a Tory one. Just to keep the irony going, he in turn would be succeeded as colonial secretary by a Conservative, Frederick Stanley, who was his son, the later 16th Earl of Derby. A more substantive event was the passage of the Criminal Law Amendment Act in 1885. The Liberal MP who first referred to Gladstone as a grand old man, Henry Labouchere, successfully proposed an amendment to it. This Labouchere Amendment criminalised so-called acts of gross indecency. That was mainly used against gays. Sodomy was already legal and severely punished by death until 1861, but the very severity of the punishment and the difficulty of proving the charge meant there were few convictions. Now, thanks to Labouchere, there was a much handier legal weapon for homophobic persecution. It would be used most notably against Oscar Wilde in the 1890s and against one of Britain's most brilliant scientists, Alan Turing, in the 1950s. Turing was driven to suicide. It's curious that this was an act passed by a liberal government, rather suggesting that the word liberal doesn't always mean what most of us think it means. Aside from these dubious accomplishments, the Gladstone government might only have been remembered for the morally questionable invasion of Egypt and the death of Gordon to which it led, the disasters in South Africa, and the solid steps over Ireland, which had nonetheless not achieved anything like a conclusive solution to the problems there. In 1884, however, the Gladstone government set out to bring in a new reform to the electoral system. That would provide it with a much more admirable monument. Though curiously, it actually came with a cost to the Liberals when they next faced an election. Gladstone had always wanted to introduce a further measure of electoral reform. The previous act in 1867 had been a Tory measure. But at heart, this kind of reform was deeply liberal. He had the full and increasingly impatient support of his radical backers, though the Whig rump in the Liberal Party was less enthusiastic. A man like Hartington, very much the leader of the Whig current, knew that the Conservatives, with their majority in the Lords, 
were opposed, and he feared that such an initiative would precipitate a further crisis between the two chambers of Parliament, the Commons and the Lords, as the Arrears Bill had. And he wasn't wrong. Why did Gladstone bring in the measure so late? Well, it made sense not to increase the size of the electorate too early in a Parliament. Existing MPs would have been elected by a smaller number of voters than would be choosing their successors, rather undermining their legitimacy and giving the Parliament in which they sat something of a lame duck character. Between the election of 1880 and the next, Gladstone's reform increased the number of registered voters by over two and a half million, the biggest jump of any of the three reform acts of the 19th century. That was colossal, though it still left 40% of men without the vote. There had been talk of votes for women and of proportional representation. Gladstone's view was that he was averse to neither, but this wasn't the time. Whether he was right or wrong, doesn't that sound like a bit of a cop-out? Women had another 34 years to wait, and proportional representation has still not happened. The biggest change was that for the first time the limited but relatively greater degree of democracy that existed in the towns was extended to the country by adopting the same voting qualifications in boroughs and counties. That applied to Ireland too. Previously, to minimise the electoral impact of Catholic emancipation, voting rights had been more limited there than in Britain. In an act of some generosity and some courage, Gladstone's government now proposed to equalise rights in the two nations, even though they knew it would almost certainly reduce the seats Liberals could win there. In the event, it wiped them out. Where there had been 15 Liberal MPs elected in Ireland in 1880, there were none at the following election. To the Conservatives, the extension of urban voting rights to rural seats, the heartland of their support, was a serious concern. It would enfranchise a great many agricultural workers and indeed some industrial workers in county seats, such as miners, since most mines were in rural areas. That, it was felt, would increase the Liberal vote and face the Conservatives with a nearly impossible mountain to climb. Now, let's not forget that the Conservatives still had their awkward dual leadership in place, with Stafford Northcote in the House of Commons and Lord Salisbury in the Lords. Salisbury had done himself no favours by his principled, though ultimately unsuccessful, attempt to block the Arrears Act for Ireland. In his biography of Salisbury, Andrew Roberts tells us that a quarter of a century earlier, Salisbury had written, the classes that represent civilization, the holders of accumulated capital and accumulated thought, have a right to require securities to protect them from being overwhelmed by hordes who have neither knowledge to guide them nor stake in the Commonwealth to protect them. You probably recognize the underlying thinking that the wealthiest, the greatest landowners, have the most to lose in the country and should therefore have the biggest say in how it's managed. Enfranchising a lot of poor people would loose hordes on them that would destroy their benevolent power. He'd lost a battle on those grounds when his own Conservative Party pushed through reform in 1867. In 1884, he decided not to go down in defence of that principle again. Instead, he would work to prevent Tory voters being swamped by hordes of the poor, as he feared would happen with the reform. So... Principle gave way to tactical considerations, hardly for the first time in politics, 
and certainly not for the last. His solution was to make it clear that he would ensure the bill was blocked in the Lords, where the Conservatives, as ever, had a strong majority, unless it was coupled with another measure to redistribute seats across the country. Adjusting electoral boundaries in this way might at least limit the damage to the Conservative Party. Salisbury was also haunted by another fear. He'd seen how people who at first agreed with his firm stand against the arrears bill had drifted away into what he saw as shabby compromise. A parapet which gives way when you lean on it, he told his family, is more dangerous than no parapet at all. This time he was going to make every effort to stiffen his colleagues' backbones. The first stage in their resistance was the same as with the arrears bill. It was to pass a wrecking amendment to the Reform Bill when it reached the Lords from the Commons, before sending it back. Gladstone responded with anger. He wouldn't give way. Exactly as with the Arrears Bill, the dispute between Liberals and Conservatives had morphed into a constitutional clash between the Commons and the Lords. Would the Lords give way and accept the will of the Commons? Would the Liberal majority in the Commons have to compromise? Or would there be some way for the Commons majority to force the Lords to back down? There was talk of Gladstone calling on the Queen to create enough Liberal peers to outvote the Conservatives in the Lords. She was reluctant, and the existing peers hated the idea of seeing what they regarded as the nobility of their chamber diluted in this way. There was another approach. Gladstone could go to the country in a general election and win a mandate for reform. As we said before, it was becoming established that the Lords would not oppose the will of the elected House if it was backed by a conclusive majority of the electorate for the measure it was promoting. But would Gladstone win such an election? The government had racked up a fair number of failures. Wouldn't that undermine the Liberals' standing in the electorate? On the other hand, reform was popular with voters. If that became the central question in the campaign, would that be enough to compensate for all the fiascos and see them home after all? Salisbury had an opportunity to show some steel, and he did. I fear nothing but irresolution, he said. I will stand to the principle that the new franchise shall not come into operation without redistribution. But will others stand by me? Just what would redistribution of seats mean? The effect would be to make almost all constituencies single-member with roughly equal populations. Where a constituency had previously elected three MPs, it would be divided into three single-member seats. Other seats were combined into just one of a sensible size. Only a few two-member seats remained. The equalisation of population between seats was an important reform towards greater fairness in elections. What about the trend towards single-member constituencies? They elect MPs on the first-past-the-post system. That means whoever comes top of the poll wins, even without an overall majority. You may remember that Gladstone had been an MP for South Lancashire at a time when it was a three-member constituency. He came third in the poll, but at least that meant that the 48% of electors who voted Liberal got someone from the party they chose. In a single-seat constituency, a single Conservative would have been elected and the Liberals would have had no representation at all. I mentioned briefly before that there'd been talk of proportional representation. 
Opinions remain divided about whether proportional representation is a good or bad thing. So let's just say that the move towards single-member constituencies using the first-past-the-post method, now generalised throughout the United Kingdom, set that cause back rather than moving it forwards. As the debate in 1884 moved forward, it became increasingly heated both inside and outside Parliament. Both Liberals and Tories took to the streets, addressing large public meetings, almost as though they were already preparing for an election. Mass meetings, still a relatively new way of campaigning, had proved their power, not least when Gladstone ran so many in his Midlothian campaign. The reform movement also organised huge demonstrations, and their opponents demonstrated against them. Meanwhile, in Parliament, Gladstone was working to win over some in Salisbury's camp who were less unswervingly opposed than he was to allowing reform to pass without redistribution of seats. And, just as with the Arrears Act, some of them were beginning to waver. Edward Hamilton, Gladstone's private secretary, talking about one peer who was beginning to question Salisbury's stance, claimed, If only Pembroke and his friends have the pluck to stand up against Lord Salisbury, Lord Salisbury must give in or be left in the lurch. This time it wasn't going to happen. This time it was Gladstone who'd blink first. This time Salisbury would have his victory. Let's let Salisbury's daughter Gwendolyn, as quoted by Andrew Roberts, describe what happened. The three arch-funkers, Cairns, Richmond and Carnarvon, cried out, declaring he would accept no compromise at all, as it was absurd to imagine the government conceding it. When the discussion was at its height, very high, enter Arthur Balfour, with explicit declamation dictated by the grand old man in Hartington's handwriting, yielding the point entirely. Tableau and triumph along the line for the stiff policy, which had obtained terms which the Funkers had not dared hope for. My father's prevailing sentiment is one of complete wonder, we have got all and more than we demanded. It was nothing like the Rears Act. Salisbury had triumphed. His stock in the party soared. With seat redistribution secured, the Lords passed the Reform Bill. The Conservatives were on a roll, and so was Salisbury. We'll see next week just where that took them. Thanks for listening. <laughs>